Hey, Don, uh, thank you for coming in. You <laughs> you have uh, just such an extensive background in healthcare, so many board positions and executive positions across the entire space and many, many years of success and accomplishments. So thank you for coming in and uh, sharing your insights with our audience. Thank you for inviting me. Glad to be here. Nice to meet you as well. You've got this wonderful career and it's uh, over many, many years in, across many different companies and more and so much contribution. What made this wonderful person you are today? You know, what were the inflection points in your life? And it could have been something that happened when you were three or five or a family member, maybe a, somebody in school, but it's gotta be these turning points that sort of woke you up and said, hey, I had to choose this career and I, and I wanna do something that's meaningful. Yeah, it's interesting. I wish I could say that there really was a plan behind uh, how I found my career, you know, winding through different uh, different roles and slightly different even industries over time. But it was a little less of a plan. I think maybe early on, even in life, I realized that, you know, who you know is is pretty important. And so just trying to meet, you know, a network with a lot of people has kind of become, I don't know, maybe a, a bit of a central theme for me. But I also recognize that I always like to learn new things and I always like to be challenged. And I think that brings me kind of to these inflection points. I can think of a couple, actually. Uh, one dating back to high school when I took a public speaking class. And as part of that course, we had to read the Dale Carnegie book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And, uh, you know, what struck me at the time, I guess, was just the lesson of everybody needs to win in a, a relationship. And if you can create that win for each of the people in the relationship, you can be more successful at the same time as the other party is. So, you know, I, I kind of took that to heart, even at a, as a 15 year old and thought about, you know, how can you really apply that to the relationships that you had? And I talked already about, you know, the network and and people, um, you know, fast forward a few years and, and very early on in my career as a consultant, I actually worked for somebody. And I guess I'll say this is the a good lesson out of an unfortunate situation, but I worked for somebody who was fairly disrespectful and abusive of many people who worked for him in the company, um, you know, in a whole host of ways. But what it really got me to thinking was how not to be like that as I advanced in my career. And, you know, you can learn from mentors in a positive way, or you can learn from other people and say, I don't want a role model, you know, bad, bad things and, and bad behaviors. And so, you know, it really taught me that being, you know, showing gratitude, showing respect to people is also really, really important in a relationship and, you know, small things, even remembering to say thank you when somebody does something for you. So, you know, that that's kind of like a lesson learned about how I wanted to approach, you know, different roles and relationships again, as I moved through my career. And again, that was very early on. And then, you know, fast forward again, a few years later, I found myself while I was working as a consultant at a client, and I was working with the executive leadership team at this client. And one of them came up to me at the end of the meeting and said, come work for me. And, you know, and I kind of laughed and said, what would I do for you? You know, I don't know anything. I've been a consultant my whole career. And he said, you shouldn't trade on technical knowledge. You should trade on your skills. You have all the skills that would be of interest. And, you know, that one comment really has resonated through the rest of my career. And, and I think it's evident in the things that I've done that I kind of took that one to heart. So I thought, you know, really good point. And a couple of years later, I did go to work for him and really started off my career in healthcare and the life sciences. And, you know, it's, it's was a really important um, comment that he made and one that I've used not only in thinking about my own career, but even in who I bring into companies where I'm working and how I recruit other individuals, you know, you have to look for basic skills and a lot of technical things can actually be learned. And I'm not suggesting I'll be a neuroscientist tomorrow or, you know, anything like that, but there are a lot of things that you can learn on the job from a technical perspective. I guess those are some of the, uh, the things that come to mind as, you know, really framing how I approached my career and, and the decisions and choices I've made along the way. 
So it sounds like you you got an early appreciation of the value of relationships and what a friend of mine calls an omni win. In other words, anytime you engage in some kind of um, transaction or relationship, it's a it's a win win. Everybody wins or an omni win. Exactly. And, and then you have this experience where you see kind of the opposite, where it's, where it's, it's like a uni win. It's not a win win, and you and it really sort of. Um, became clear in your mind the value proposition of having people uh, and being grateful and, and, you know, being respectful and so on. And then that progressed through your career. And then you talked about getting into consulting and then you get this uh, offer and, and it, it ends up being in healthcare. And then, and then you end up doing so much in healthcare. Um, leading up to that uh, point then in school, uh, did you study business or, you know, what, what areas did you study? No. So, you know, that's kind of a little known fact as well. And it, it surprises people when they hear this, but uh, undergrad, I studied psychology and sociology and I have a graduate degree in sociology. So maybe that's the people side of things, you know, as well for me in the relationship side or the, the personal interactions with individuals or group behavior or whatever, but it's fascinating to me. Um, I did also uh, have a minor in math and statistics, so I taught um, as an adjunct professor undergraduate research methods uh, at New York University at one point, and also graduate statistics. Uh, so that's the really little known fact, but I have never taken a single business class in my entire life. Um, so there's the technical knowledge part, a lot of learning on the job. Having a background in, in teaching math and statistics is such a basis for everything that's out there because really fundamentally everything works based on math. If you really look down and deep into it, even if you study things like electrical engineering, it's actually founded on math or engineering physics is actually largely math. And in fact, the less technical the engineering field, the less math you get. So again, math being a foundation and you, you got this great math background. I also found those who study psychology and, and also sociology, it gives you a sociology, it really gives you a system kind of view um, uh, because, you're, uh, because you're studying behavior sort of like a mass, right? And uh, that really translates into, well, I think across business and, and other domains of science. In fact, one of my uh, colleagues who I sit on the board with, uh, he, he also has a math background, um, but he's, his PhD is in sociology. And he's one of the top data scientists in the world. And in fact, he coined the term data scientist at IBM. So, okay. so I have an appreciation then how that could fit into like healthcare because there's so much tech embedded right. in healthcare system thinking into healthcare behavioral thinking into healthcare as well. So that's a great underpinning for what you're doing today. Um, so you, you go into consulting, you've got this, I think a fantastic background for consulting. Uh, and then you get this uh, entry into healthcare. And so can you talk, talk about the different jobs you've taken on into healthcare and maybe some lessons you learned for each job? Sure. So, you know, initially, uh, well, I'll, I'll start out actually just by mentioning as a consultant, I worked probably about 80% of my time outside of the United States. And this that little fact becomes important as I moved into the roles uh, within healthcare. So the first role really was for Medco Health Solutions. So a pharmacy benefit management company, fantastic company, spectacular people working there. I loved every minute of uh, working there and, and the colleagues that I got to meet. And again, it was a job that I took not knowing anything about the actual business. So, you know, initially when I came in, it was how to learn what a pharmacy benefit management company does. And, you know, I entered uh, managing a client portfolio and really trying to learn all the, the features of pharmacy benefit management, how to uh, work with a team, how to work with a, a group of clients and to you know, it was really a relationship of managing the client portfolio, but upselling different products and services uh, into that, that client portfolio. Anyway, after being there for some time, Medco was looking to expand internationally, and I was offered the opportunity to become the chief operating officer for Medco's international business. And, uh, you know, I moved at that point, actually, to the Netherlands. 
And uh, it was a fascinating time because you cannot be a pharmacy benefit management company or a PBM outside of the United States. It's kind of like this U.S. phenomenon. And so we were looking at different opportunities in different countries or ways you can commercialize different capabilities of a PBM based on a market need. So we were doing different things in different countries. I mean, truly super interesting, you know, meeting lots of people, learning healthcare systems, you know, in, in different countries, which are all, you know, slightly nuanced and different and uh, finding ways to tease apart things that we could do in the United States as a PBM, but to apply them to a different market and, and different circumstances. Uh, super, super interesting. Uh, I did learn, I guess I'll say at the time a lot, you know, about working internationally, living internationally, kind of that appreciation of uh, different cultures and even having to assimilate into, you know, different cultures, which again, maybe it ties back to the sociologist in me, but I absolutely love it. And uh, from then Medgo was being acquired by Express Scripts. And at that time I decided I didn't want to come back to the United States and didn't want to stay with the company. So I actually, again, this is kind of leveraged my network. It's really a theme uh, throughout my whole career, but leveraged my network and called somebody who I had been speaking to um, from a pharmaceutical company and said, I know we've been talking about having Medgo do this work for you, but Medgo is going to pull out of the international space and I'm planning to stay. Would you like me to come do this for you and work for you? You know, so it took a bit of a flyer on that one. And uh, he actually said, yes, I'd love you to do that. And, and in fact, I need someone to come in and do a whole bunch of other things for me. So could you do that? And again, you know, just like when I was entering Medgo, I was saying, I probably can. There's a lot I'm going to have to learn, a lot I don't know. But if you're willing to, you know, take a little bit of a risk on me, I'm willing to put in the effort. So I came into uh, Teva Pharmaceuticals at that time. I was the chief operating officer in Europe. I took on responsibility for a lot of different functional areas that I guess you'd call commercial operations. Uh, also was globally accountable for patient services and solutions, which was very much what we were setting up at Medco. Uh, and what he was interested in initially when we were speaking. And uh, anyway, I learned all about working for a pharmaceutical manufacturer at that point, and you know, a lot more about generics and branded drugs. And uh, again, how now to work across 36 different countries. And it, it was, you know, again, a, a wonderful growth experience from a career perspective. Loved it, loved the colleagues. I got to build a team. Uh, really enjoyed, you know, every aspect of it. But again, as I'm always, you know, thinking about my next challenge, I did get a call from somebody I had worked with uh, back at Medco, who I thought extremely highly of. And he was taking a job as a CEO of a private equity backed company. The founders were just stepping out and private equity bought the company and he was stepping in. And he said, come back to the United States, and, you know, do this with me come be the president of the company. And, you know, at first I thought, I don't know if my family will like to move from Amsterdam to Cleveland, Ohio, but in the end, he was a very effective and persuasive salesperson. And uh, I was looking at it as I haven't worked with private equity before. I do know the PBM space. This company has a very interesting and disruptive positioning within that space. I'll do it. You know, again, looking to be challenged and learn something new and uh, so I came back to the States for that job and uh, we very quickly sold the company, which I did not think would happen when I was coming. So within the first year, we actually had concluded the sale to the Rite Aid Corporation. Um, I did stay on for a while and uh, learned more about retail pharmacy, I guess I'll say, than I knew before, but uh, decided at some point that it was really time for me to move on and try something new. And again, just by virtue of networking, met somebody who was, at, he's a HR operating partner at another private equity firm. And he said, you know, we were talking at a cocktail reception at JP Morgan. And he said, you know, we have this CEO search going for a company. I think it would be a good fit for you. And, and that was Pro Pharma Group. And so I did come into Pro Pharma Group. Um, again, this was a spectacular opportunity in this case, really got to build a team, 
we did a number of uh, M&A transactions, which I also really enjoy and have had some exposure to uh, prior to that, built the company. It was a global company already, but to be a much more uh, weighted international footprint than it had been initially and uh, took the company through a sale from one private equity sponsor to another. And then I was thinking I actually might like to try my hand at retirement, which I laugh about a little bit because it wasn't really a retirement, but that's when I started to sit on more boards and uh, take on more advisory work with some private equity firms around M&A. And uh, I moved into the board chair role for Pro Pharma Group, which I still hold today. And uh, I, I managed eight months in that semi-retirement phase until uh, I then moved on to the role where I am now at Lab Connect. And again, a, a great opportunity to build a team, build a business, and, and really work with another you know, private equity group on taking the company through its, its growth trajectory and, and to a successful sale at some point in the future. I mean, that's like... Five careers in one. <laughs> no, it's it's a chance to learn a lot of different things and to always be challenged. That's kind of how I'm looking at it. I mean, you do international consulting, which really lends itself well to you know the Hay Group, uh, Medco Health Solutions, Tevo Pharmaceuticals, Envision RX Options, a Pro Pharma Group, where you know the executive chairman, a non-executive chairman, and uh, now Lab Connect. Yeah, we have a mutual friend, Alan. Did, did he recruit you or how did that happen? <laughs> he actually wasn't the first person to recruit me. So the uh, the sponsors, the financial sponsors actually were the ones doing the recruiting, I'll, I'll say, as the first round of interviews. And I had met with all of them. But then as part of the process, I did get to speak to Alan. And, you know, I thought that was fabulous. He was one of the founders of the company. And I could hear about, you know, how they even came up with this idea to have this company and how the company had grown over time. And, uh, you know, that that's really how I came to meet him initially. And then obviously I've gotten to know him much better as he sits on our board and I get the pleasure of seeing him at, at the board meetings and he does a lot of very interesting things. And so I always uh, enjoy hearing more about the things that he dabbles in and including even art. So I like speaking to him on video and I see his art behind him. So he's, you know, fascinating uh, person as well. Now, uh, so are you part of this thing called YPO, Young Presidents Organization? I mean, you fit, right? Your profile. Is I am not. <laughs> yeah. So I am not. And that, you know, maybe is another thing about me is I don't, I don't participate in a lot of like organizations or groups like that. Um, so I'm not part of that organization. But you'd be a great fit, though. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And you're a doer, right? So it's a, there's a concept of dreamers and doers. In fact, there's a book that came out, Doers and Dreamers. You're definitely a doer. <laughs> you dream, but you also do, right? So Yeah, I think so. So tell me more about Lab Connect. I mean, uh, what's its objectives right now? You know, the overall vision, goals, and mission of Lab Connect and then your vision going forward, uh, you know, where you'd like to see the company in two or three years time. Yeah, sure. So, you know, Lab Connect uh, has had a great growth story. So it was around for 20 years before I came here, uh, has done very well in that time. And what Lab Connect is, is we provide central lab services for companies running clinical trials. And uh, as, as part of doing that. There's a number of services, but it's a, I can describe them, but a full suite of services. But when I came to the company, one of the things that was evident as we were really looking to, I'll say turbocharge the growth was that the company had been successful selling the, the service, but hadn't really taken enough time to build up the infrastructure to, to support a lot of the growth that it had had. Um, I'm going to characterize a lot of these things that I'll describe as kind of this adolescent phase in companies, right? You need to professionalize and become a full-fledged adult as you go. And so the company was, you know, right on the cusp of adulthood and trying to, to work out a few of the kinks in its personality. So, uh, you know, that, that was part of it. We also were seeing that as we were growing and having this reputation in the marketplace that 
we needed to be able to offer our services directly in other geographies and not only from our team in the US or working with partners in other geographies. So part of it was focusing on an international expansion plan uh, and then, you know, really building out the leadership team, the company through the 20 years had had grown, but with a, a very, very small team and structure. And we really needed more of a deep and broad bench to continue bringing that company forward. And so uh, I came in, I came on board in May of 22. So about eight to a little more than 18 months ago. And uh, we built out the leadership team. We have a spectacular team in place. We have stood up our European operations, which is, you know, super fantastic. And we're looking now to expand into Asia Pacific and also to South Africa and kind of following where our clients need us to be. And um, we'll continue on that plan. We're looking at uh, some M&A to help us to build out some additional services that fit well within the footprint of what we do. But part of what was really important also was the messaging, right? So we recrafted our, our website. You asked about the mission of the company, you know, really honed in on what is the mission. And for us, it's to create healthier communities by accelerating the development of new medicines for patients who need them. So the theme of acceleration is really important in our business. You know, patients need medicine when they need it. And uh, so everything we've done around our kind of the the branding and the messaging that we have now in the marketplace is how we help to get the medicine to patients faster. And that's by supporting these trials in a way that everything we do is nimble. You know, we're very flexible, we're quick to act. Uh, we wanna work in a way that our clients need us to work to be very customer centric and aligned with them because in many instances, we're really working as an extension of their team to bring these medicines to the market. So. That's really what we do. And, you know, it's very, I'll say patient centric at the end of the day, in that it's all about getting that medicine to the patient who actually needs it. So you must then use um, different kinds of technology. Uh, you know, how are you integrated from a technology sense when you do your business? Yeah, so there is a lot of technology that underpins what we do as a business. Uh, you know, we use everything from Salesforce, right, to track our client relationships. We have a LIM system, so laboratory information management system um, that helps with organizing data. Uh, we do actually collect a tremendous amount of data from the trials, all the tests and lab results, which is a tremendous amount of the actual submission uh, when somebody is trying to bring a drug to the market. And so we actually have just started thinking about are, are there ways that the data that we have can be used to be more helpful as others are launching trials either in a specific geography or a specific therapeutic area. And could this data that we actually have from the past help them to inform decisions that they make again to bring these drugs to the market in a faster way. So your clients, I guess, would be things like hospital groups. Um, it, it would be research groups, I guess, uh, pharma, pharma, uh, pharmaceutical companies, things like that. Our, yeah, our clients are pharmaceutical companies, biotech companies. Um, we also work with CROs because then they work with the pharmaceutical company or the biotech company, but those are our, our clients directly. And then so we... Maybe you can define CRO for our audience. Sure. It's a clinical research organization, and they help, again, with a pharmaceutical manufacturer to run a clinical trial and, you know, all aspects of, of bringing a drug to the market. And uh, what do you see your company, let's say, in two to three years' time? Uh, you, you're looking to be acquired at some point or...? Well, you know, when you're owned by private equity, I guess that's always uh, the goal in the future is that somebody else will buy you. Um, but the who buys you is is always a good question. Um, within the next couple of years, I really think that, you know, it's most likely we'll continue to grow at an accelerated pace. We're kind of operating like this well-oiled machine now, um, gaining a lot more market traction. I see us operating with a, a truly global footprint. Um, which is something I wouldn't have said two years ago because we didn't have our own operating footprint globally. 
Uh, I think, you know, the team will be bigger. People will get a lot more job opportunities within our company as a result of it. But where will the company be? Likely, I'm going to say one of two things, either owned by a much larger financial sponsor um, or we could end up being uh, assimilated into a strategic buyer, you know, whether that's um, one of the large CROs that maybe doesn't own a central lab or have a central lab, so they need one, or it could be one that has one and thinks our model, which is fairly unique, could um, help to better position or grow their capabilities in that area. So it's hard to say what the, the final direction will be, but it will probably be one of those two things. Do you work with health alliances too, like the Washington Global Health Alliance or... Or, or you do work with CRO, so like Terasaki Institute of Biomedical Innovation groups like that? We have uh, some work, I'll say, with foundations or NGOs where they may be sponsoring some of the research that's done for uh, drugs in other regions. So as an example, it could be, uh, you know, for TB-related therapies and, you know, focusing more on developing uh, countries. And then um, there's an increased use of artificial intelligence or AI, and you see all of this news about large language models. Is your group looking at that, or, or is that something that doesn't quite fit uh, what you're doing in your operations and uh, you know the way you do your work? I think it's interesting. It's a great question, and I know everybody talks about AI and you know every discussion that you have. I think that there are ways that it could fit, as I talked a little bit earlier about the future of how we can use and leverage the data that we have. I think that's a good application for AI in our business, uh, more from you know a, an analytics of large data sets um, perspective and how you can draw information out of uh, the information that you've already collected. <clears throat> but in terms of you know work processes and so on, I'm not really sure that AI would be that beneficial to some of uh, the work that we do. Do you maintain your own researchers or is that through CROs and other partners? It, and in what respect do you mean that? Because you're so um, connected to a very research-oriented kind of community. And then I was just wondering if you'd maintain even some researchers in-house or I guess it you'd it'd always be through your client uh, relationships, right? For the most part, yes, although we do have people with different data and science degrees, a lot of them, uh, who work within our organization. And, you know, as you think about mining data, you know, biostatisticians and, and people with those types of backgrounds become very important to our company as well, or people with medical degrees who could understand, uh, the, you know, the kind of drug development and could or have a scientific background and could opine on, you know, how a study is put together and different types of tests that are necessary uh, as you're running a trial. So if you look at the future of now the healthcare industry, because you're in a way a hub for different elements of the healthcare industry, uh, do you have some kind of sense of where it's going? So I'm thinking, you know, there, there's precision medicine, but now it's very personalized uh, using, using you know, energetic markers for things, uh, nano uh, technologies. There's uh, so much occurring in the biomedical innovation part, right? Even, even you know, uh, working with stem cells and or even 3D printing of organs. I mean, it, it sort of goes on and on. David Sinclair did a... Uh, a uh, really interesting announcement. I guess he wrote a paper recently in a period in time where they really focused on it just a few weeks ago. Sounds like they're at the brink of, of solving aging uh, where they can rejuvenate mice and now they're looking at primates and and that's going to be pretty profound. So they're going to have to run clinical trials everywhere. Right? So, so do, do you have a sense of, of where the healthcare space is going? Because really all of it's going to be centered around running clinical trials, right? Right. And, you know, I, I don't know that I want to say I have a sense of where it's going, because I think there's a lot of directions that it's going. And, you know, a couple of years ago, as an example, everybody talked about cell and gene therapy and the importance of cell and gene therapy. We do a ton of work in cell and gene therapy, but the reality is we do work in 
all therapeutic areas, whether it's cell and gene therapy or, you know, different types of molecules. So it's, I guess that's kind of the benefit maybe of our model is that we can support whichever direction uh, the industry seems to move. But I think all the things that you mentioned, you know, they're all fascinating developments and, you know, there's just so much of it that, uh, that also supports why Lab Connect is, you know, important and uh, has the right model to help any and all, you know, I I'll guess I'll say of those directions that the healthcare environment may take to, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, be successful. Do, do you happen to work with Bob Langer's lab at MIT? Bob Langer, of course, as you know, he's, I don't know, created over or he's been part of the founding or investing in over 40 companies. He's, he's one of the most uh, cited engineers in history. So <laughs> I don't know, has your sort of ecosystem touched with his ecosystem at all? You know, it's a great question. I'm not really 100% sure if the answer would be yes or no. So uh, we partner with many different labs around the world and that's somewhat study specific at times. Um, we do have a partnership in the United States though as our, I'll say primary reference lab with Cleveland Clinic at this point. We've also been working for the history of the company with the Johnson City Medical Center. We have a, a partnership with a lab in Cologne that's a privately held laboratory, the Whisplinghoff Lab. But then there's many, many specialty labs in our network all over the world because depending on the study and the trial and the type of test that's actually needed, we have this network of labs that we have you know, developed, I'll say, over time. And uh, there are about 70 labs in the network. So it's just a little bit hard for me to be specific about who each and every one of those labs are. You indicated um, uh, sort of a U.S. footprint and a European footprint, uh, also in Asia, parts of Asia, maybe Southeast Asia, Africa. India is part of that as well, right? Yeah, so we actually work fully on a fully global footprint today. However, our own operations at the moment are in the U.S. and Europe. So we, we deliver services through partners in all the other geographies today. And some of these are partners we've been working with for 15 years already. Others we might find in their newer partners, depending on the specific needs of a given study. Yeah, I mean, I, I just came back from a um, leadership board meeting with the Terasaki Institute, and it was really interesting. One of the uh, Indian um, members of the... Uh, uh, based out of India, the country of India was indicating that you can run trials there so much more readily, perhaps, uh, if you want to sort of um, speed up the process and then take those results and then, uh, you know, help to when you do FDA clearance and things like in the U.S. Do, do, do you, you must see those kinds of strategies also or? Uh, there, there are actually, and there are um, locations where um, they've become, I guess I'll use the term more favorable for early phase trials. So, you know, as an example, Australia has been that now for a number of years, very favorable market to run, you know, phase one trials, um, some phase two research as well. And, you know, that could be what he was referring to the same thing about India, we're seeing some of that, you know, in South Africa. So it's uh, different pockets or different geographies where, you see some of that work being done and, and those results being, I'll just say, exported elsewhere. You would definitely, and it's too bad you won't be to talk about it. There's going to be all sorts of NDAs, disclosure <laughs> requirements, but you would definitely see what's coming up ahead because, because you've got your eye to all of these different clinical trials. So you would see amazing things that are up on the <laughs> upcoming, right? Yeah, and some of it, you know, some of the things that, we work on, you know, it's it's super exciting when you see an important drug finally coming to market. Um, again, I don't want to be too specific for the same for the reason of these NDAs, but there is one example very recently, and you know, people who work at Lab Connect and have worked with this client for a number of years to finally see the drug coming to market. You know, it it's rewarding it's you know fulfilling it just shows how important the work that we do is and it's really at the crux of our mission statement right which is getting medicines to the patients who need them 
Do you have any other, uh, so for you personally, you've now spent a considerable amount of time in the in the healthcare business. And in fact, you were even thinking of retiring and then get pulled back in. <laughs> so, um, so Don, where, where do you see yourself in five years? Are you still going to be working at the helm of some company or, or et cetera, et cetera? I, I, I know you'll be sitting on boards, but are you going to be sort of active as well? You know, it's funny. If you asked me that two years ago, I, pro I would have said probably not. But, you know, where I'm sitting here today, I think I still have some good years ahead of me, especially if there are drugs coming out to stop aging. I mean, maybe I even have more years ahead of me. But uh, but yes, I, I most likely will be sitting here talking about Lab Connect for, you know, the next five years as well. So, you know, it's a great company. There's a lot of things we can do with this company and, you know, I'm excited to be part of it. And, and I really love the team of people that I work with. And so if you're happy at work, you just want to keep on going. I guess you don't even think about the amount of time that, you know, is passing you by. So in five years, if you call me back, I'll probably still be here talking about Lab Connect is my guess. So let's go into a crystal ball again about the future and I'll throw some ideas out. And then if you have any reaction to them or not, I, you know, uh, there's this confluence of supercomputing, um, what we call exascales uh, supercomputing, which can do a billion, billion operations per second. I believe that we'll have Zeta scale within 10 years, which is a trillion billion. That computational power is so great that you can model the entire world. You can model uh, weather systems, um, there's an attempt to model the entire human brain <laughs> in a supercomputer where it, it actually duplicates all of the neurons, the, the, let's say 80 to 100 billion neurons and let's say the, you know, the 100 trillion synapses and all of that to be modeled within a, a supercomputer. So there's that confluence of what's happening on the, on the computing side. And we have quantum computing, right, where you're getting niche applications and definitely in the pharmaceutical industry, quantum computing will, will be transformational because you can solve nature kind of problems, which are definitely embedded into healthcare in, in uh, what we call polynomial time. So you can do it. It's a, it you could determine, get a deterministic actual answer and it's not going to take 10 million years. Uh, so I'm going to talk about other areas that I think are transformational. Do you see any elements of that in the work you're doing with all the research groups and, and CROs and so on? Well, I, you know, I think everybody is, is looking for every way possible to better leverage data, whether it is just to do maybe more simple things than what you're talking about, like inform better decision-making earlier in, in a research uh, process or study. But I am sure that, you know, as you're describing, as people begin to use data at a much more sophisticated level, um, it will probably start informing a lot more than just some smarter decision making. I, you know, I think it will probably be driving some of the decisions rather than in, just informing them, if that makes sense. Um, but you know, that that's kind of what comes to mind now, and and I think everybody uh, looks is looking already at ways to better leverage information and data that we already have access to, and how it can help us to work smarter, faster, and better, you know, going forward. You know, there's this uh, Japanese scientist in 2006 called Yamanaka factors, these kind of four factors. And he discovered that you could take an adult cell and you can regress it into a pluripotent stem cell by applying these kind of these four factors. And then from that idea, he got a Nobel prize, I think in 2012. And, um, that's where this idea of, of rejuvenation came out and he tried it, but then what'll happen in the, in the tests he did with animals, they, they would get cancer. And so this is a problem that's being worked on, but it looks like there's some solution to it where um, you can apply three of the factors, you can rejuvenate, not just this, um, an adult cell, but maybe an organ or even a whole animal. Um, and can you imagine that like a mouse that sort of, uh, from an aging standpoint, it's like 90. Now it's 24 in essence, or an organ within that mouse using these three factors. You can inject it, but then what you can do is you can unlock it with an anti uh, uh, antibiotic like deoxy, uh, deoxycycline, I think, or something like that. You can you can then 
unlocking. And it's really, really interesting work, which means that it has to go through tons of the clinical trials. Um, right now, they're going to go to primates and then it'll be human trials. Do you ever think about the philosophical elements of that? Uh, I mean, it, it, can you imagine if, if um, you could take an injection and gets unlocked with with a with a um, um, antibiotic, and you could be young again? And then, what does that mean to society? Do you think about some of those questions because you're in the middle of it? In essence, right? You will see it, right? And and all of the ecosystems you're part of, you will see it happening and before it actually gets released you'll see the result or you know what what do you what do you think about these questions it, it was funny as you were describing it i was sitting here thinking what are all the new problems that that actually creates around the world you know the, of, of course there will be many right because we will have let's say businesses that are focused on aging that are less important or if everybody's young, you know, <laughs> what does that create? I, you know, I, I was sitting here starting to think like, wow, you know, that, that has puts a whole different, you know, not only for drug development, clinical trials and so on, but for society at large, right. It just creates a very, very uh, different set of needs, let's say in terms of businesses or how people work or interact or, you know, even, um, gyms, you know, <laughs> and, and are they going to cater to everybody with a 17 year old body and they don't need to cater to people who are older? Or if you're an orthopedic surgeon who, you know, focuses on the elderly and you don't have to repair broken hips anymore because they're not breaking, you know, again, I'm throwing out a whole bunch of random thoughts, but it's, uh, you know, it, it solves one problem, but whenever you solve one on a, let's say, very interesting and mass scale like that, it creates a whole bunch of other issues that need to be solved for. And, you know, clearly I didn't think it through in advance of your posing the question, but it is very interesting, right? Um, you know, putting my, my relationship with Lab Connect and what I do for work, I'm just thinking about, you know, the broader context of what does it really mean if something like that really comes to fruition? I mean, even on the labor market, because yeah. I could be 17 again, but with the knowledge of right. where I am today, that would give you a competitive advantage. <laughs> right, exactly. So, uh, you know, it, that's what I mean. It creates a whole set of issues that would need to be solved for. And, uh, you know, if we spent another three hours, we could probably whiteboard many, many things that would need to be considered. So, you know, it's a very interesting um you know, I'm sure it's interesting to a lot of people to think, oh, I could be 17 again. But then when you start to think about all of the yeah. downsides to society of everybody being 17 forever, uh, you know, there's there's clearly some upside, but there's, I think, a lot of uh, a lot of questions that would need to be answered about how things continue to function. You know, do people continue to even go to school to get educated if they never have to have a job? Because we're going to be around forever and we have all the knowledge. So we'll just keep working. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, I want to introduce uh, another, uh, we talked about AI and machine learning, but, you know, AlphaFold 2 came out from DeepMind and they were able over a relatively short period of time show how amino acids fold into proteins. And the folding of proteins is responsible for all sorts of different kinds of uh, diseases and challenges, but also, uh, uh, treatments and so on if you can if you can somehow alter or control that folding or misformed proteins could be the heart of a lot of the problems that are in humans for example alzheimer's right mm -hmm. uh, and and there's another model called esm fold where they were able to identify how amino acids could fold into 600 million uh proteins and three years ago maybe the maximum number you had three or four years ago the maximum number you had discovered was about 250,000. So go from 250,000 to 600 million. That's the impact of AI machine learning. And uh, that's going to transform the pharmaceutical space, but it'll then transform what you do from a clinical trial standpoint as well. Any, any thoughts on that? Because again, because you're the hub of all of this happening, right? So. Yeah, I, you know, I, 
I don't know that I have any thoughts on it. I think, again, it's it's kind of supportive of the model. However, it's only supportive, perhaps, of, of the type of model that exists today with trials if you need to keep doing trials. You know, at some point, do you need to or do machines actually give you enough specific um, and accurate information that you don't need the trials anymore? And you know, as, as if you keep thinking about AI and machine learning at some point, can they answer all of the questions that a trial actually does answer? That's fascinating. Again, uh, I mean, I, I, I was at the leadership board meeting of the TerraSec Institute for Biomedical Innovation. We toured their lab mm -hmm. and you're right. We can, you, we can actually at least shorten. Um, there are these things called uh, microorganospheres or moss where we can uh, create a uh, sort of like an exact duplicate of what happens in a, in a sphere, uh, hydrogel sphere of, of a tumor in the surrounding cells and in the support cells, the immune system, you can capture all of that and you can do all sorts of um, therapeutics at it and see what happens, right? And you, and you can replicate this like a million times, but right. you don't need a human being. But at some point, I, you still will have to put, do a clinical trial, but it should shorten it. I'm thinking because you can even use, you can even uh, take a cell from a patient who already has uh, some kind of tumor or something. So it's very precise and personalized, right? So exactly. Or, you know, does it become sophisticated enough that you don't need to take the cell from an actual patient who has the tumor, but they can grow the tumor from yeah. cells that they've collected? So yeah, I mean, I think that there's going to be all sorts of interesting things as uh, as science continues to advance, as technology continues to advance, and they come together, right? There's there's clearly the intersection of the two, but I do think you know initially we might see it as accelerating new medicine development, but over time maybe it also reshapes the pathway that it takes to develop something new. Well. You live at the the confluence of all of this. Uh, a pretty exciting position you're in, uh, Don. <laughs> so yeah, you know, like I said, I like to learn things and find things that are challenging and interesting. So I found myself here. And it sounds like you you want to continue this journey um, for the foreseeable future. Do you have any sort of closing uh, thoughts that or areas that we missed that you want to talk about? And then I'll ask one final question. That's recommendations to the audience. Yeah. Um, I don't know that, you know, there's really anything that we necessarily missed. I think we've covered a lot of ground and, you know, I, I think that uh, just kind of reflecting on how I've gotten to where I've gotten, like I said, I think that, uh, kind of that the power of the network and every step was always through a relationship or, or someone that I've known. And it probably does tie to your last question as well. So maybe I'll let you ask the question and then I'll uh, keep answering. Yeah, what I've heard uh, even throughout this entire um, chat with you is that you're always looking at the boundary layer too. Your, uh, uh, your stretch goals, you're always setting stretch goals. So. Because you would say, yeah, we'll take that on. I don't know a lot about it, but I know I'm going to learn. So so not being afraid to take on challenges or, or being in sort of this unknown area. There's there's this uh, study by uh, Christensen and, and, and all at Harvard where they talk about the innovators DNA, which combines uh, people who are really successful, are always questioning. Um, they're always observing. They're always experimenting, trying things. Uh, relationships is a big part. In fact, uh, they call that networking. Uh, and you do all of these. And the last part is associating. That is taking really desperate uh, pieces of knowledge and somehow integrating them and to go into a cohesive sort of plan for the forward. And because your background is diverse and you've done so many things, I could see, see you have all of those elements of the innovator's DNA. So that then leads to the last question. What are your recommendations to the audience? Yeah, you know, one thing I, I will say that came to mind that you didn't ask about and we didn't talk about, but I'm asked about it often just, uh, you know, by virtue of the fact that I'm a woman, I have a family, you know, children and all these other things, in addition to all the stuff that we've talked about. And uh, 
you know, I do a lot of mentoring also, and have I found that very rewarding. I feel like I learn a lot and hope that I'm imparting knowledge onto the people that I'm I'm mentoring. And I'm asked very often about work-life balance. And, you know, it's it's always a funny concept to me. And, you know, again, you didn't ask about it. It's it's not really the the point of the interview, but I think it's important because I think as people go through a career, you need to think about what's important to you for your work-life balance, right? It's not it's not a thing that just exists that has one definition. And it's something that it took me a while to realize and to learn along the way about I was doing things that worked for me and my definition of my work-life balance is probably terrible for somebody else. And maybe they would say that doesn't work at all. And uh, I think everybody should give some thought to that as well as, you know, what are the criteria and the things that really matter to you as you navigate your career and, and make sure that you're true to yourself. And that, you know, if, if a job that you're taking on is going to get in the way of other things that are personally important to you, then don't take that job. Or you have to, you know, be comfortable giving up those personal things. And I think it's an important thing. People, you know, we talk a lot about work, but you have to balance it with who you are outside of work. And that's uh, also very important. So anyway, I'll, that's my last piece of advice, I guess, maybe to people. Yeah, that's uh, sort of taking a personalized view of what work-life balance and then honoring it, I guess, is a that's what you're sort of uh, directing to the audience. And that's very true, right? You can't live by a, an external formula. You have to put it into your own context. That's <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, uh, Don, uh, just a marvelous career, just uh, such a wonderful uh, example of leadership and innovation and being proactive at things as well. And <laughs> uh, I mean, just across the board, it just... Uh, uh, really outstanding professional background and and uh, just amazing things you've done. So thank you for coming in and sharing your insights uh, with your, our audience here. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure uh, speaking to you today. Thank you for listening to the brand called You Videocast and Podcast, a platform that brings you knowledge, experience, and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Do visit our website www.tbcy.in to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Just search for the brand called You.